Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My lectionary essay this week is based upon the readings for January 13th, 2019, and it's entitled Choosing Epiphany. On this first Sunday after the Epiphany, we find ourselves at the water's edge as Jesus receives John's baptism of repentance and experiences a moment of divine revelation. The word epiphany comes from the Greek epiphania, meaning appearing or revealing. During this brief liturgical season between Christmas and Lent, we're invited to leave miraculous births and angel choirs behind and seek the love, majesty, and power of God in seemingly mundane things. Water, doves, voices, sky. In the gospel stories we read during this season, God parts the curtain for brief, shimmering moments, allowing us to look beneath and beyond the ordinary surfaces of our lives and catch glimpses of the extraordinary. Or at least, that's the goal, the hope, the dream. The difficulty is I'm not quite sure what 21st century epiphany should look like. I've never seen the heavens part or heard a divine voice thundering through the clouds. Though I've professed belief in a self-revealing God all my life, I've not experienced revelation in any of the ways the epiphany stories describe. My experience might be unique, but I doubt it. I don't know many Christians these days who bask in signs and wonders, who complain that God talks too much or intrudes into their lives too often. But I know plenty of believers who experience God as hidden and silent. These are faithful people who long for epiphany, who believe in its possibility and even seek it out, but don't find it. So I stand at the edges of this week's gospel reading and find myself afraid to leap. How shall I bridge the gap between an ancient voice and a modern silence? Heaven opened, a dove descended, God spoke. Really? I want to believe this. I do. But to accept the supernatural in scripture is to plunge into a sea of hard questions. If God spoke audibly in the past, why doesn't he do so now? If he does, why haven't I heard him? Do I lack faith? As he retreated, changed, left? Or are the ancient stories of Epiphany figurative? Was the dove, in fact, just a dove, and the voice from heaven no more than a nicely timed windstorm? When we speak of epiphanies, are we really just trucking in metaphor? Perhaps God should be in scare quotes. I had a spiritual experience. I felt God. He spoke to me. Isn't it embarrassing nowadays to believe in miracles? As Luke tells the story, there's no indication that Jesus' baptism leads to mass wonderment, obedience, or conversion. In his version of the event, Jesus is praying, immediately after his baptism, when heaven opens and God speaks. Does anyone else see the dove or hear the divine voice? Do the crowds fall to their knees and immediately agree that Jesus is God's beloved Son? The Gospel doesn't say. Perhaps a few folks experience a quick shudder of amazement or fear. Perhaps they shake their heads, wondering if they're imagining things. Perhaps one or two of them actually see, hear, and believe. For the most part, though, the epiphany seems to be for Jesus alone. It's intended to bless, bolster, and commission him as he begins his public ministry. Its purpose is to reiterate to Jesus who he is, to affirm his identity and vocation. If the epiphany doesn't immediately change the world, then neither does it immunize Jesus from future spiritual struggle. His temptation in the desert lies ahead. Gethsemane lies ahead. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Lies ahead. As all four Gospels make clear, Jesus never outgrows his need to seek God in solitude and prayer. He never stops needing nourishment from his Father. An epiphany, then, is a glimpse, a quintessential moment that comes and goes. We're certainly right to hope for it, but it will not suffer our hoarding. We're meant to receive it with open hands, release it back to God, and keep our hands bravely open in its aftermath. 
According to Christian historian John Dominic Crossan, the baptism story was an acute embarrassment for the early church, but for reasons very different from our modern ones. What scandalized the gospel writers was not the miraculous, but the mundane. Doves and voices? All well and good, but the Messiah placing himself under the tutelage of a rabble-rouser like John the Baptist? God's incarnate son receiving a baptism of repentance? Repentance for what? Wasn't he perfect? What was he doing in that murky water, aligning himself with the great unwashed? And why did God the Father choose that sordid moment to part the clouds and call his son beloved? Every age, it turns out, has its signature difficulties with faith. When we're not busy flattening miracle into mirage, we're busy instead turning sacrament into scandal. After all, what's most incredulous about Jesus' baptism story? That the Holy Spirit became a bird? That Jesus threw his reputation aside to get dunked alongside hordes of sinners? Or that God looked down at the very start of his son's ministry and called him beloved, well before Jesus had accomplished a thing worth praising? Or to ask the question more pointedly, what do we find most impossible to believe for our own lives? That God appears by means so familiar we often miss him? That our baptisms bind us to all of humanity, not in theory but in the flesh, such that you and I are kin, responsible for each other in ways we fail too often to honor? Or that we are God's beloved, not because we've done anything to earn it, but because God's very nature, inclination, and desire is to love? To embrace epiphany is to embrace the core truth that we are deeply, deeply loved. Can we bear to embrace such mind-bending truth without flinching away in self-consciousness, cynicism, or shame? Here's my real problem with this liturgical season. I always, always have a choice, and most of the time, I don't want it. I expect God's revelations to bowl me over. I expect epiphany to come in ways that leave me choiceless, powerless, and flattened in awe. I want a divine encounter that will free me of all doubts for all time, so that I literally pulse with faith. But no. God has not insulted humanity with so little agency. We get to choose. We have to choose. No matter how many times God shows up, we're free to ignore him. No matter how often he calls us beloved, we're at liberty to retreat into self-loathing. No matter how many times we remember our baptisms, we're free to waste our days dredging out of the water the very sludge we first threw in. No matter how often we reaffirm our baptismal vows to seek and serve Christ in all persons, we're still at liberty to reject each other and walk away. The freedom in which we live, move, and have our being is so vast, so all-encompassing, and so generous it can feel overwhelming. But this is love. It doesn't impose, it doesn't coerce, it doesn't assume. It descends as quietly as a dove and speaks in a voice so gentle we're free to ignore it. I don't know about you, but I find this maddening. How much nicer it would be if the font were self-evidently holy. But no, the font is just tap water, well water, river water. The voice that might be God might also be wind, thunder, indigestion, or delusion. Is the baby divine, or have we misread the star? Is this the very life and body of God's Son, or is it a mere hunk of bread, a jug of wine? What I mean to say is that we must participate in the enchantment. We must choose epiphany. Choose it, and then practice it with resolute intention and diligence. The challenge is always before us. Look again. Look harder. See freshly. Stand in the place that looks utterly ordinary. And regardless of how jaded you feel, cling to the possibility of a surprise that is God. Listen to the ordinary and know that it is infused with divine mystery. Epiphany is deep water you can't dip your toes in. You must take a deep breath and plunge in. Yes, baptism promises new life, but it always kills before it resurrects. What reason for hope, then? What shall we hang on to in this uncertain season of light and shadow? I believe we can hang on to Jesus. He's the one who opens a barrier and shows us the God we long for. He's the one who stands in line with us at the water's edge, willing to immerse himself in shame, scandal, repentance, and pain, all so that we might hear the only voice that will tell us who we are and whose we are in the sacred season. 
Listen, we are God's own, God's children, God's pleasure. Even in the deepest, darkest water, we are the beloved. For books this week, Dan reviews Messiah, The Composition and Afterlife of Handel's Masterpiece by Jonathan Keats. Just before Christmas in 2015, my sister sent me a newspaper clipping about Galleon, Ohio, the little town where I was born. Galleon was celebrating its 60th anniversary presentation of Handel's Messiah. Just two months after I was born in 1955, my father challenged a new choir director of the city schools to perform the Messiah. He responded, if you get 75 people there for the first night of rehearsal, we'll do it. And that's what my father did. On that first rainy November night, he kick-started a 60-year tradition. The first performance of the Messiah in the high school auditorium had a chorus of 129 members. One measure of the influence of Handel's Messiah is that this story about small-town America is hardly an exception. Hundreds of choirs all over the country still perform Handel's masterpiece and give it what Jonathan Keats calls its afterlife. Keats is well known for his 400-page comprehensive biography of George Frederick Handel. Handel, the man in his music, so readers are an expert hand with a small volume about a single work by a prodigy who wrote 40 operas. Handel had been in London, he was a naturalized citizen almost 30 years when he composed the Messiah, in a three-week burst of creativity that began on August 27, 1741. On September 12th, he had completed a draft score, which, as he goes on to describe, was always a dynamic work in progress, rather than a static or finished subject. When Handel left London for Dublin to perform the Messiah for the first time on April 13, 1742, for example, he had no idea what awaited him in terms of singers or instrumentalists. It was a year later, in March of 1743, that the work was first performed in London. Keats concludes his book with the oratorio's specific origins and yet universal appeal. Sincere and practicing Christians both, George Friedrich Handel and Charles Jens, the libertist, created Messiah for a Christian audience, yet it consistently manages to transcend the limits of religious and confessional dogma. Its emotional range, the ways in which it embraces the multiplicity of existence, the directness of its engagement with our longing, our fears, our sorrows, our ecstasy and exaltation, give the whole achievement an incomparable universality. Messiah knows who we are and speaks to us all. For movies this week, Dan reviews The Hateful Eight. Quentin Tarantino's most recent film is set in a frigid and desolate Wyoming winter, where in the first few minutes he gives us a long and lingering close-up of a snow-covered Christ on a cross one of the most famous violent deaths in human history. The bounty hunter John Ruth is taking a fugitive named Daisy Domerick to Red Rock to collect a reward for her hanging. They meet a black bounty hunter named Major Marquis Warren, who has a similar mission and destination with three dead bodies. And then one Chris Mannix, who says that he is a newly appointed sheriff of Red Rock, hitches a ride. This motley crew overnights at an abandoned stagecoach stopover, where they meet several other suspicious characters and together form The Hateful Eight. In an interview, Tarantino said he wondered what would happen if he gathered just a bunch of nefarious guys in a room, all telling backstories that may or may not be true. Trap those guys together in a room with a blizzard outside, plot twists, give them guns and see what happens. Well, what happens is mutual suspicion and paranoia, hidden identities, reflections on frontier justice, the racist shadow of the recently ended civil war, a poisoned pot of coffee, and, big surprise, an orgy of graphic and gratuitous racial and misogynistic violence. Everyone loves Tarantino's spectacular cinematography, clever plots, his slapstick humor, and the towel-snapping smack-talk of his characters. But what about the violence and misogyny? Violence is hanging over every one of those characters like a cloak at night, says Tarantino, so I'm not going to go, okay, that's the case for seven of the characters, but because one is a woman, I have to treat her differently. I'm not going to do that. Should we watch a film like this differently now in our Me Too moment, especially one that was distributed by the Weinstein Company?
And finally, for poetry this week, Let Your God Love You by Edwina Gately. Be silent, be still, alone, empty before your God. Say nothing, ask nothing. Be silent, be still, let your God look upon you. That is all. God knows, God understands, God loves you with an enormous love and only wants to look upon you with that love. Quiet, still, be. Let your God love you. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for January 13th, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.